This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with National Public Radio's Bob Boylan. He has shaped the new way an entire generation consumes music. He created and hosts the incredibly popular online All Songs Considered, as well as the increasingly celebrated Tiny Desk series. Earlier, he produced and directed NPR's afternoon news show, All Things Considered. Bob also is an author of a book released last year called Your Song Changed My Life. Spectrum's art and culture reporter Emily Vota recently talked with Bob about his lifelong fascinations with the nature of sound and music. In your book, you talk a little bit about, I mean, you talk about listening to your, I believe it's your grandparents, 78s when you were a kid, and really being into the Beatles when you were younger, but I was really curious about your really early memories of sound, and and what really resonated, did you always have this um, real visceral connection with sound in general, or, yeah? I remember putting uh, baseball cards in my bicycle spokes. Do you know about that yeah, trick, yeah. right? I liked the sound of, uh, I lived in the city. I grew up in Brooklyn, loved the sounds of uh, cars and uh, planes coming overhead. And I'm not sure whether it was different or special than other people, mm-hmm. but it sure came back in a roaring way as a, as a when I began composing music and writing music and as one of those people who did sampling early on in the early 80s and stuff, using natural sound and music and stuff was super important to me. And I mean, I grew up in a very, what I'd say is a really loud environment that was quiet was not something that happened. I've come to value quiet and, and being in music studios, like this room, like right now you could hear just, you could hear some hum but it's relatively quiet. When I started working in recording studios, it was the first time I can really remember hearing quiet, hearing my blood, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you ever go into an anechoic chamber at all? You know what those are? Like no, a cha- I don't. What are those? It's kind of, it's like a floating room, or like a room that's isolated from all vibrations and so forth. Oh, and, wow. and then soundproof, so you go in and there is no sound. And there's no bounce. Like when you speak in the room, that all the surfaces are all absorbent, like, what we have behind us here uh, with the foam and stuff and it's, it's eerie as all absolutely I mean and, and you said that kind of, you said that came back when you were um, making music um, in the in the mid 80s right it's late 70s mid 80s yeah exactly. could you could you tell me about that like what was what were you looking for in those natural sounds because I I believe you were getting a lot of them from National Geographic right or? I did I, I went and uh, sifted through uh, old film what they call wild sound. Uh, it was a term they used for just general capturing of sound when they were out filming something in case they needed some background noise. And I would grab Wild Sound's recordings from National Geo to then sample 
and make music out of. I was trying to understand what it would have been like to be in a, a location many hundreds of years ago when the loudest possible sound made would be the church bell. And the church bell, uh, as I came to understand and discover through a book called uh, The Tuning of the World by a guy named Murray Schaefer, the church bell was literally defined the distance and size of a town by the distance that the bell sound would carry. And that, that was the definition of the town was the, and imagining that, how sound defined the borders of a community, and then understanding the world we live in that is so incredibly noisy and how we got from one place to the other. And the theater company I was with called Impossible Theater back then uh, did a number of pieces examining what particularly was the Industrial Revolution and how we all dealt and how sound changed. Sound was, I mean, the volume of everything from horse carts down the street and then in the automobile, the factories people worked at. I mean, it all took away so much from that idyllic, you know, beauty that we think of when we go thinking back to, uh, yeah. you know, a village. Times past. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think that is? Is it like the particularly the, um, like, because you spoke at the event earlier today about how you're not super into movies, you're not super big reader, but you are really passionate about listening to music. And do you think that's something about the physicality of the sound, like the, the vibrations that's particularly appealing to you? Or is it some sort of emotional resonance? Why, why, yes. why do you find it to be kind of the most perfect media for you? I like that it's amorphous. You can't, <clears throat> it, it's here and gone. I like that a lot. Like a sound just has a certain amount of length of life. And then vanishes, and there's something magic about that. There's something that endlessly fascinates me. I like the personal. I like that you can do it that with music and stuff. It can happen just inside of your head. I can completely imagine a song playing. Or, or I like the fact that I can be alone and enjoy it. I spent lots of time in my room alone with music, and or the sound of the radio under my pillow. Uh, listening to music as a kid and I like creating this I like the little world it creates it's there's a comfort to it uh, but then it also has the role of being a community uniter as well so it's not just this thing I can do by myself yeah. it does it can do both of those things and I think that's kind of magic for sure and you had said something really uh, similar to that at the event earlier today about going to uh, live shows occasionally by yourself and, and sometimes specifically to enjoy the yeah. community. And that really resonated with me because that's something I love to do too. But is there, could you speak to that? What is special about the experience of being in a, pl a venue for live music and enjoying it kind of in a, a, um, a solitary sort of way, I guess? What's the enjoyment of doing yeah, that? Yeah, what, what's so, is there something that really brings, something that comes to the experience because of that? Or Well, I mean, I can listen, I can spend time more with the words and the storytelling that the artist has if I'm not like distracted or jumping sure. around or uh, talking to my friends or uh, and I like watching the eyes of the performers 
and how they watch each other and the interaction, the sort of silent interaction that goes on between musicians. This, it's a you know, it's a nonverbal language, but uh, just lots of things that each do. Like when I was in a band, when my guitar player lifted his left leg a little, you knew we were going to change to the chorus or something. Uh-huh. Or so there's little signals that go little on that some are his body language that I don't even think is ever even talked about, but is acknowledged as. And so I, I like watching this little mystery hand signal-y thing that happens. There's something about getting lost in that world that's just inexplicable, I think. It just, uh, it just down in my bones appeals to me from the first time I ever saw a band live, which was probably when I was about eight years old. And uh, standing side of the stage and just watching this thing unfold, something I had heard all of my eight years of life on radio, but never actually saw people do. And I think uh, nowadays that's probably not true. Most kids see live music when they're babies and when they're running around and going to the farmer's market or whatever it might be. But for me, growing up in Brooklyn, I never saw a person play music ever until, in my memory anyway, until I was at some uh, hotel up in the Catskills with my family. Oh, wow. Could you tell me more about that? Like, what was, uh, do you remember in particular, uh, could you tell me more about that experience? Or do you uh, remember who was playing? I, I mean, <laughs> it was probably, it was a cover band. Yeah. I have no idea who they were. Mm. They did a version of Michelle oh, by the Beatles. Nice. And uh, it wasn't long after that song had come <laughs> out. So it was, it was probably 1966. The mm. song came out in 65. Uh, and it was just fascinating that, hey, wait a minute, I know this song, but you guys are playing this? How do you do that? <laughs> like sure. there were so many questions that went on in my brain that I just, it was uh, it, it was pretty fascinating. It was a late night. It was uh, a hotel. I'm not sure which hotel. It was in the, in the Catskills. Uh, and it was mind-boggling watching, standing side stage and watching these players. Absolutely. I, I mean, I definitely, too, was really curious about I guess I was trying to think of the right terminology for this, but I feel like maybe the best way to phrase it would be like your musical hygiene. Like how often do you listen to music and is it usually by headphones or, I mean, it's obviously a huge part of your work and I'm absolutely sure a huge part of your personal life too, so. Yeah, it's pretty constant. (laughs) Um, At work, we all wear headphones because we're in an open space. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the days when I used to have an office back a long time ago, I, I could put on speakers and listen to music in my office over speakers, but uh, that's not the design of NPR anymore. It's an open space building, so everybody listens on headphones. I listen on rather kind of open ear headphones, you know what that means, so that that you can hear the stuff around you, people, if oh, people are nice. talking or something, you know, just yeah. they're just not, they're not covering not your ears completely, the but they're on your ears, but they're foam, and so somebody's speaking to you, you could at least say, know that someone's speaking to you. So I, and they're wireless. So that's what I listen to a lot in the day while I'm at NPR. Uh, at, I listen to music in my car driving home. I make playlists as uh, music I get in during the day. I make playlists and drive home with that music, usually not knowing what I'm listening to so I can fall in love with something not knowing what it is. I think it's really important to do blindfold listening in my world so I'm not biased that I actually judge the music on the music and not oh I really like this band kind of thing Mm -hmm. when I'm home I have a nice stereo as they call it back then (laughs) I don't know (laughs) what you call it anymore (laughs) and uh, 
yeah and uh and usually blast the music or play the music when i'm cooking or doing whatever i might be doing uh i have music in every most rooms of the house wirelessly wired oh, nice. wires, wirelessly wired wirelessly uh, around so it's all synced up so no matter what room I'm in I can go from room to room and it doesn't you know I think the weekends I spend time if I can listening to older things because one of the things there is no real disadvantage of the work I do but if I had to say that there was one one of them is that I never get to listen to records to the same record over and over that I, I grew up on like about that. Yeah. like when I grew up, I'd listen to a record, you know, a hundred times. I mean, mm -hmm. I'd listen to records over and over and over and over, and you know every single word, and you know every nuance. I can't do that anymore, and I, that's sad. That's the only downside. So often on the weekends, I'll put on an old favorite album or something like that and put on the vinyl and pull from my record collection. Oh. Um, but then again, it's hard because there's lots of stuff to catch up on during the week and listen to. So, For sure. I, well, I, I got to ask then, like, Last uh, last weekend you were you were home. Like, what was one of the old favorites you put on? I, I'd, I'd be I'd love to know. There's this new record by this woman Olivia Cheney, and I'd never heard her before. Uh, and I put it on, and it's, as it turns out, um, the Decemberists are her backing band. Oh, cool. And they're doing uh, one of the things about the Decemberists, the band from Portland that has been so wonderful, uh, is that they have this passion, though they're an American band for British folk music. And, uh, and so a lot of the songs on this new record, the Decembers are the backing band for Olivia Cheney on this record. And, uh, and so it's all these old like groups that you might not know, Steel Eye Span and Fairport Convention and all this, right? Uh, so there are bands that were really important to my life in, uh, uh, in the late 60s and 70s. And so it made, inspired me to listen to some old British folk music and pull out some of my old albums. Nice. You know, f groups like Fathering Gay and things that no oh, one cool. would. You know, <laughs> it's nice. It's nice to get inspired. For sure. I mean, I I was curious too because, um, like you say, I mean, you listen to so much uh, new music all the time. Do you think did that? Were you always like that? Where, was it always something where it was easy for you to listen to something new all the time? Because I know a lot of people who love music, uh, sometimes those are people who kind of stopped listening to music when they were like 25. Not that they don't still love music, but they're not consuming new music, I guess. Yeah. How do you consume new music? <laughs> uh, well, first, I, I, all through college, I worked in record stores. So new music was always available. Mm -hmm. you, did, you, want, you looked at an album art, you want to, to listen to it, opened it up, put it on. Nice. And so that was amazing. And the period in the late 70s when I started making music, the period in the late 70s when I started making music um, was so fertile and there was so much, so many new acts that had never made music before. So it was really easy to discover, uh, again, to discover new music. I've just always had a passion to seeing what's around the corner, you know, like what is, what, what are they doing? Who are they? I don't know them. <laughs> but music radio was, other, after 1979 in Washington, there was none, basically. And so uh, you had to kind of figure it out on your own. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, 
each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I was curious about your experience working in record stores because I know that's something you did a lot. You did through college and then you, you quit to pursue uh, music. But, um, I mean, what, what is the cultural importance of a record store for people who love music? I was curious if you could kind of talk to the cultural climate that that, kind of, that, that sort of environment breeds. For my own self, when I moved from New York to Bethesda, Maryland, a place I knew nothing about, mm-hmm. and I was 15 years old and got plopped in a, an environment and, and city that I knew no one knew me and I didn't know them and culturally back in the late 60s was city to city was very different from one another there wasn't a homogenous culture as there was as there is now I found the local record store and knew I would find like-minded people to be able to have conversations with and so as a before I worked in record stores just as a lover of music um, it was a place for me, like other, I'll say, slightly outcasts of culture, uh, a, a way to to meet some like-minded souls. The record store I worked in wasn't the record store I went to as a teen. It was a record chain called Waxy Maxies, and so it catered to everything from uh, – mom and dad coming in to buy, you know, a Percy Faith record or, or something, uh, you know, easy listening mm-hmm. to uh, the jazz fanatic, to the, uh, you know, the spacey electronic listener, to the folky. And so I wound up learning a lot about music I never would have learned about so that I can, when that customer came in who bought the last Percy Faith record, I can say, hey, you heard this, you know, Roger Williams record, also a great piano player. And and so it just helped me expand my, my taste just by uh, wanting to help people discover music. Even music I knew nothing or didn't care about, I wanted to learn about. So that was, it was a great experience. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I also, I, I really wanted to ask you, very much on the same note, I, I know that you've been, um, or I've seen videos of you saying that there's no such thing as a bad song per se. It's just whether or not a song um, appeals to you, appeals to one directly, I guess. And I was curious if you could speak to that a little bit more because, I mean, culturally speaking, um, I mean, you're, you definitely are a gatekeeper for, for a lot of people in terms of new music. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I could dislike an awful lot of music, but saying that the music is bad is just, there is no point for me to because music is a very personal thing. It's yeah. like me telling you that curry is terrible. You shouldn't eat any curry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? That's silly. Mm-hmm. 
It's such a personal taste. So in my music journalism way, where some people might say this is good and this is bad, I just try to say what I personally think is enjoyable and worth passing on without saying it's better than this or that. And I just think it's a healthier way to talk about music and not um, put down things that people might find lots and lots of value in because we all live different lives. We come from different places. We want different things. Like, what is it that you want music to do is, you know, a question that I ask people. And for some people, they want to be entertained. And that's just fine. And I don't mind some entertainment, but I want something more. I want it to shake me up. I want it to make me think different. I want it to paint pictures for me. I want it to be meaningful to the person who wrote it. I, I, there's so many things I want music to do, and but that might not be what you want from it. Yeah. And that's okay. Totally, totally. I, I mean, um, yeah. Could could you speak to that a little bit more? Because just just in, in reading about your career and, and knowing about you, um, knowing what I what I could research online <laughs> and read your book and all that, um, I, it seems like you're definitely someone who is very like artistically ambitious and and does have a like a healthy level of expectation for the media you consume to be ambitious in a way. Um, I guess I'm kind of posing the same question to you. What do what could you tell me more about what you want from music? I want it to I mean surprise me. Yeah. Please. <laughs> um uh, I want to be taken into its world. I, I wouldn't mind getting lost in a song. I wouldn't mind caring about understanding it or applying it to myself or to maybe a situation I'm I know. So personal yeah. is personal, important. Yeah. I like texture a lot in sounds and music and I like I find that adventure of just listening to sound for sound's sake, and we talked about this at the top of our conversation, that's important, and the way sounds evolve from one to another. I'm interested in that. It's an element. It doesn't have to be in every song, but Mm -hmm. uh, I like that. I like when I make music for it to do that, uh, to do unexpected things for different textures to turn perhaps into rhythms unexpectedly or, Uh, you know, just... I don't know. There's, there's, uh, I, it is one of the hardest things to describe and explain, but I think it's, it's visceral. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to describe the visceral. But I do know that the, the, the musicians who challenge themselves are often the ones that wind up challenging my ears. In this, in this day and age especially. In this day and age, it's, really, it's very possible to make music that sounds professional by pushing a button. For sure. And uh, which that didn't exist before. And so there's more and more not very interesting stuff that sounds like it was well made, but it's yeah. no effort. It's effortless in not a good way. Mm-hmm. And then not enjoyable kind of way. Yeah, right. <laughs> For sure. Well, I I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I I was uh, curious if you could talk about the importance of persistence as a creative professional. Because looking, I mean, looking at your trajectory from an objective standpoint, just outside, I can see a lot of like persistence, like always going with things that you 
truly can align yourself with, I mean, like morally, ethically. Mm -hmm. um, and I was curious if, if you could talk about that a little bit, because that, that's still just such a great story of you walking down NPR and being like, hey, guys, need any help? <laughs> just day in, in and day out. And I just, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you could speak on the importance of that sort of attitude, that'd be great. Um, I never thought of it as an attitude until mm -hmm. I looked back on it, right? Yeah. Until someone like you would ask <laughs> me about it. It yeah. never really, it's just like, well, sure, if you want to do something, you just Gotta keep at it. it, right? Um, Robin Hilton says that I have uh, that I'm like a dog and that I bite. My, I have a really firm bite, but it's really sort of it's a gentle one. You'll hardly notice it, but I won't ever let go. <laughs> and uh, Robin's a guy who does all songs with me, co-hosts of. If you believe in something and you don't pursue it, and you turn forty and fifty and sixty and say, "I never really tried to make it happen." I would just think that would be the saddest thing. Yeah. We get one shot at life, at least that's my belief. I yeah. could be wrong. Who knows? Because <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> but I'm going to say that we get one <laughs> shot. And uh, I just think that you try to make every effort to find your place in life. I mean, your place in life might be being a cog in a bigger machine, and that might be satisfying to you. Your place in life might be to be the voice of someone else, Meaning, I mean, much of what I do is that, where my, I try to take other people's music and put it out there. So I don't, I make records all the time, one every year, but I hardly ever tell anyone about it. Um, but I'm really, pers uh, find my goal in life, or seems to be that I help other people get the word out about their music, and that's very satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. There were times in my life where I was very, very bored with the work I was doing, and I, it was just felt unacceptable. Yeah. Right? Like, no. I mean, okay, yeah, I'm good at this TV production stuff, and yeah, I've done some kind of funny stuff, and I'm okay with it. But it didn't feel like I was touching anyone. It didn't mm. feel like I was making, affecting anyone. I didn't feel like I was helping anybody's life. I was simply making money doing something that wasn't very hard yeah. it was a little bit creative yeah. and I really wanted to find work that I felt had meaning to it and I guess some of that persistency was deeper than I consciously thought of but it was there and I'm really glad I was driven Absolutely. that way it wasn't it didn't seem in my family my my dad was happy being a salesman but I don't know where it came from Wow, well, absolutely. Well, I mean, is there anything else that uh, anything else you'd like to say? I love to tell interns and people who are trying to find places in life is to go out, find. You might not know first of all what you're passionate about, so figure out what you're passionate about, yeah. and then find your way to do if you can do your work and make your money and your living in what you care about, because the majority of your time in life is going to be a chunk of it is going to be where you work and what you do every day to bring home money and if you can find that place in life that is makes you happy that's really pretty pretty remarkable and the only way that stuff happens is if you make an attempt to make it happen for the most part thank you so much for your time i oh, really appreciate it yeah, good meeting <laughs> Today we've been talking with Bob Boylan, the NPR creator and host of All Songs Considered and the Tiny Desk series.
podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.